from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll take a few stressful holiday movie situations and give you real-life advice on how to handle them this holiday season. Then, we'll learn about a mission to slow the spread of invasive carp by turning some of the fish into spies. Generally, the strategy is referred to as a trader fish strategy. If you've ever seen a spy movie, uh, where they put some kind of tracker on someone's car. It's, it's the same concept. Plus, we'll hear from the first female senior rabbi in a reform or conservative synagogue in the metro Milwaukee area. I'm honored, and it, it means a lot to me personally. I think it means a lot to Milwaukee and, and to the Jewish people to see that example. We, we hear a lot about you can't be what you can't see. All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. The holiday season can be full of cheer, but it can also bring unnecessary stress. Whether it be from the pressure to get the perfect gift, last-minute changes of plans, or dysfunctional family dynamics, the holidays are not always easy to navigate. Many holiday movies reflect these sources of December stress, and offer insight on how to and how not to navigate them. Dr. Lynn Knoblock-Fetters is a licensed clinical psychologist and an associate professor at Marquette University, and a movie buff. She spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods to offer tips on how to manage common causes of holiday stress using situations from holiday movies. Our first movie is an absolute classic, Home Alone. Um, So for those who aren't familiar, Kevin, the main character played by uh, Macaulay Culkin, uh, is left home alone by mistake as the rest of his family rushes to catch a flight during the holidays. How could we do this? We forgot him. We didn't forget him, we just miscounted. What kind of mother am I? If it makes you feel any better, I forgot my reading classes. Now, during the holiday season, there's so much to do with so little time that we tend to forget to focus on the important things. Maybe not, you know, leaving our children behind as we go on vacation kind of important things, but those little things kind of get in the way of realizing and focusing on the important things during the season. Um, Dr. Knobloch-Fetters, can you talk about how to manage the overwhelming feeling of just so much to do, so little time during the holidays? Yes, I think it's important to keep in mind why we're celebrating the holidays. We're celebrating them to bring our family and friends together, uh, to spread peace and love and joy in the holiday season. And sometimes those minute details can just take over our lives and give us this frustration, this irritation, this overwhelming sense of um, being overcome by things that are really small when you take a step back. And so I would like to encourage people to take a pause and focus on the things that are most important to them during the holiday season. Special times or experiences that you want to lead the way in your holiday celebration. And when you can focus on those really important moments, the rest of the smaller details seem to fade in importance. Do you have any tips for someone who, you know, can recognize this, that like, hey, I've got a lot to do in a little bit of time and it's stressing me out, but I want to focus on the more important things, but I just don't feel like I can. Is there any way that someone in that position can kind of work through that? 
Our human tendency is just to rush even faster and do even more. But when I work with people, I let them know that if they slow down and really take care of themselves and give themselves some calming time, even take some deep breaths, go for a walk, have some peaceful time, actually they're better able to manage the stress and they will end up being more productive and feel more fulfilled in the end. So it's kind of this dialectic where we want to rush to get things done, and yet that is the opposite of what will help us feel like we have accomplished things that we are proud of. In a rush to get things done is a good segue into our next uh, film, which is Jingle All the Way. Um, so this is another another '90s film. Focuses on the main character uh, Howard, who's a workaholic uh, husband, um, and he wants to make up for neglecting his family in lieu of work for, um, you know, the whole year. And he knows his son wants the hot new toy, a Turbo Man. And Howard, uh, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, goes to extreme lengths to get the perfect gift. And so, like Howard here, he's under a lot of pressure. Or he feels like he's under a lot of pressure to get the perfect gift. And so, for those who celebrate Christmas and give gifts for during Christmas, you know, this is a relatable struggle. You know, you're, there's someone special in your life, and maybe you've told them they're special. Maybe you've spent a lot of time with them over the year, but you still want to get them that perfect gift. Do you have any tips for managing this pressure of getting that perfect gift? I love that you brought up this movie, Jingle All the Way, because I think it's a perfect illustration of focusing on the meaning behind gift giving. So Howard is so focused on buying the special toy for his son. But meanwhile, his family and his son just want more time with him and for him to show up in the memorable experiences that they want him to be a part of. And so I would encourage people to just switch their priorities um, from trying to think that the perfect gift is going to be the symbol of your love in the relationship to really thinking about expressing your love and joy and appreciation, maybe through spending more time together, having more experiences together, and less about the actual thing. Because we all know that human beings love things for about 10 minutes, and then our attention quickly turns to the next thing. And really, material things aren't as satisfying as deeper, more lasting human relationships and experiences. I'm picking up on a theme here in the first two answers that it's it's not about the commercial part or the material part. It's it's really like this is an opportunity to spend time with your loved ones um, and so kind of focus on that. Am I am I reading this right? Yes, you are completely right. Um, you know, our society really emphasizes commercialism and it emphasizes busyness and productivity and during the holiday season it's very important to try to challenge some of those societal pressures and uh, think about the hidden or the deeper meaning i should say of um, the whole holiday season well in spending more time together hits on a theme of our next movie almost christmas uh, so Walter, played by Danny Glover, lost his wife earlier in the year and just wants one thing for Christmas. 
for his four grown children to get along together under the same roof for five days during the holidays. And it's what their mother would have wanted, but it proves to be a lot harder than expected. Oh my God, you always start. Actually, you both started. You know what? You stay out of it. You're just making it worse. I'm making. Okay, I'm. Oh, I'm lying now. This is Ouch, exactly why bro. I want to stay in a hotel, Pop. Well, what's stopping you now, huh? Nothing's you stopping me. No, I'm not going to let you Quiet, 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 quiet. And so, navigating family conflict or dysfunction during the holidays uh, is a is a common, common, common form of holiday stress. And often, a lot of it feels out of the control of the person who's feeling those feelings, feeling those emotions, feeling that stress. Dr. Fetters, how can people recognize that they're getting stressed out by situations like this and continue to either move from it or know that it's time to remove themselves from the situation? Oftentimes, when we go back home uh, to spend the holidays with our families, it's almost like we become 10 years old again. (laughs) And we're relating to our siblings, we're relating to our parents or grandparents in that same way as when we were kids. And those family patterns are so deeply ingrained in us that it's very easy to fall into those patterns without recognizing that you are now um, with more life experience, more wisdom, and more freedom to relate to your family in different ways than you were when you were 10 years old. So I would encourage people to think about common stress points or stress in relationships, and we all have family members that are difficult to get along with, but think about how would you like to treat them in a loving and gentle way, and how will you Um, rise above the common triggers and not let them pull you under into uh, the feeling of being 10 years old again. So if you can come up with an attitude of charity or generosity or tolerance, I think that will make your holiday experience with your family go much more smoothly. I I love that analogy of feeling like you're 10 years old again, because that is that I, I feel that it's like a kind of a new brain switches on where there's these old things that come up, these old triggers that come up. It's like, man, I haven't thought about this in years. Like, I didn't know this was still a part of me. And they come up during, um, you know, during the holidays or just kind of a, in certain situations. But Almost Christmas also hits on themes of grief, just like the next movie on our list, Christmas Checklist. And this is the newest movie on our list, and, and like Almost Christmas, it touches on themes of holiday grieving, but with a lot fewer siblings to fight with. Uh, the story centers on Emily, who plans to spend Christmas alone as she grieves her recently passed mother. Uh, however, when she discovers a posthumous gift from her mom, a 12 Days of Christmas checklist of self-healing holiday activities, uh, she takes on the challenge to get out of the house for the holidays. I think she knew I'd be heartbroken without her, so the list is her way of making me do stuff to distract me from my sadness. Well, then there's only one thing to do. Complete every item on that list. Grief and loss can be such a huge weight to carry during the holidays, especially recent grief and loss. You know, if this is your first holiday season without, you know, a family member that you really loved or someone in your life that you really loved, um, that can be a lot to hold on to and you know fight through to get to that holiday cheer part of the of of the season but dr knoblock fetters for people who are navigating grief and loss during this time what would you suggest thinking about or focusing on during this time to both acknowledge that grief and that loss and those real feelings but also you know maybe find a little bit in the holiday season beyond that 
I think uh, dealing with grief and loss is incredibly challenging at any time of the year, but it's particularly difficult during the holiday season when our image of Christmases past and celebrations with loved ones who are no longer with us can really tug at your heartstrings. And sometimes that grief comes in waves, in um, floods that you never even expected. And so I encourage people to really find a way to honor that grief during the holiday season. Uh, think about a tradition or a memory that you have with your loved one and do something to honor that memory. And it may not be the same tradition without that person present, uh, but it could be your time of celebration of the relationship that you had and the person that was in your life that impacted you for the good. So I would encourage people not to rush through those feelings or pretend that they aren't there or go on like everything is okay on the outside. I would encourage them to really honor and respect their grief and be attuned with themselves and allow them to feel their feelings in a very respectful and authentic way. And we'll end on a lighter note with our final movie, uh, A Christmas Story. And so fans of this movie may remember classic lines like, you know, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. But I want to focus on the final scenes where the neighbor's dogs eat the Christmas dinner and it forces the family to change their holiday plans day of. <laughs> Unlike some of these bigger emotions that we were just talking about, you know, family dysfunction, grief and loss, regret, something like this can come just out of nowhere, whether it be, you know, your flight was canceled or the neighbor's dogs eat the turkey or, you know, you burn some food, whatever it is, plans can change even during the holidays, which can also add to that holiday stress, right? So as we're heading into the holidays and as things will inevitably not go as planned, how can people manage that stress of last minute changes day of during the holidays? I think that sometimes we build up so many idealized fantasies in our mind about the way things should be or how things must be that we don't get um, fully invested in the moment. And I promise you that if the food is burned or dogs come in and take your Christmas dinner away, um, you will remember that for the rest of your life. And you might not remember that as much as if the meal was perfect and all went according to plan. And so those kind of comic things that are surprising or changing at the last minute might be the very things that bring your family together and allow you to laugh and reminisce uh, in the future about how difficult that was in the moment, but how everyone got past it. And so I would encourage people to, yes, you can certainly think about your vision for how you'd like the holidays to go, but when that vision doesn't match reality, be flexible enough to go in the present moment and enjoy the experience for whatever it turns out to be. 
Well, Dr. Knobloch Fetters, thank you so much for joining me on Lake Effect and for, you know, putting it back in my brain that this this holiday season is supposed to be about time spent together with loved ones, not about gifts, not about things going perfectly, but that time together recharging from a from a year in community with people. And thank you for uh, reminding us of that um, as we head into the holidays next week. Thank you for having me. I wish everyone a blessed and joyful holiday season. Dr. Lynn Knobloch Fetters is a licensed clinical psychologist and associate professor at Marquette University. She spoke with Lake Effects Sam Woods. Every Milwaukeean has their favorite fun facts about the city, something no one else seems to know. Now, a new book has gathered dozens of those stories into one collection. Secret Milwaukee by Jim Nelson is full of fun, lesser-known stories about the Cream City, and he joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to share a few of them. There are a lot of stories in here that I think some like diehard Milwaukee history people are going to go, oh, yeah, I, I know this and right. that story. But what are the stories that you found as you were doing this that you went, oh, I didn't know about that. Oh, this is interesting. Well, I'd have to say the biggest one for me, I don't know where I'd been, but the treasure of Byron Price. <laughs> um, the, so there's a total of 84 locations in the book. That number was given to me by the publisher. And I had a good 75 to 80 ideas, you know, that I, w- that I was working on, but I needed like those last few. And so I decided to crowdsource it using Facebook. So I put something out and said like, hey, is there something you'd like to know more about? Something strange, weird, or obscure? And a friend of mine told me to look into this and said that she and her family are just like obsessed with trying to find this treasure, this buried treasure somewhere in Milwaukee. I had, I've lived here my whole life. I had never heard of this. I researched it. Um, had a blast looking looking into this. Was was going all over Lake Park trying to find uh, not this treasure, but so much just like can I find the trail that leads to the treasure would would be nice. Um, so that one was a lot of fun to write. Of the stories that you wrote about, of course, we're not going to get to 70 or 80 of them. We're going to talk about just a couple here. But what are some of the ones that you find really interesting that I guess maybe you're surprised people don't know about? Um, One of the more surprising concepts, I would say, is cemetery history. And that actually bubbles up in a couple of the stories that I wrote into the book because... Once a cemetery is a cemetery, it's kind of hard to move it. Like, it can be done, but it it's not done frequently. And when it is done, it's always controversial, like relocating graves and that sort of thing. And so what's happened is as the city and its suburbs have grown and they have taken over formerly rural lands, they now kind of surround some of these old closed cemeteries. And one of the things that's very interesting is they're just kind of hidden in plain sight. Like you may drive past them, but you don't know that they're there. And oftentimes there's that's the, by design because the the city or the suburbs don't want people 
kind of trespassing on this cemetery land, and so they've deliberately not marked them. And I know there's one near uh, Levy Cemetery near uh, where I've lived most of my life. I had absolutely no idea it was there. And I started to do some research and I found the old cemetery and uh, got onto the land. And sure enough, there are a couple of, of graves there and, and, and probably a few dozen unmarked graves as well. Interesting. Now, this is kind of uh, cemetery adjacent, but a story that I learned pretty recently that I know you talk about in your book is uh, Milwaukee's interesting relationship to the origin story of the exorcist. Uh, now, can, can you dig into that a little bit? Yeah, it's true. Um, so there were there were three priests who were involved in the actual real exorcist. And uh, there's there's this this young boy who was believed to be possessed by the devil. He had grown up in a Lutheran family. Supposedly, an aunt of his introduced him to a Ouija board. And that's, uh, according to the family legend, is what started it all. And when the, the parents became very concerned because of, like, flying objects and, and that sort of, of thing in, in, in their home, as one would become concerned. And they initially went to their Lutheran pastor who evaluated him and said, you're going to need an exorcism. And that means you need to go to the Catholic Church. And uh, apparently the boy was evaluated by a psychologist as well as, well as a parapsychologist who, who specialized in phenomena of the paranormal. And everyone agreed. It, it took a while, but they were finally able to, to find a, a priest uh, who was able to do it. And he was assisted by two younger priests who, who needed to hold the boy down. And one of those two younger priests later went on to become a professor at Marquette University and lived here for decades until his retirement. Did not talk about it very often in his experiences with that and he is interred at Calvary Cemetery right here in Milwaukee. Yeah. It's an interesting just little nugget of history. And I think this book is really just full of these nuggets of history, as it were. Uh, what would you say is your favorite bit of history that you put into this book? You know, I have so many, it's hard, it's hard to choose. <laughs> um, I think... One of the stories that I was very just fascinated by was the story of uh, Dirty Helen Crommel. And uh, her book has actually recently, her autobiography has, has recently been re-released. And um, it's the story of the most notorious brothel keeper in Milwaukee during Prohibition. Now, for most of the stories in the book, for almost all of them, um, there's a site that you can actually go to to do some touring. So, you know, obviously you can go to a cemetery, that's free, and you can go to some of these historic buildings and either for, for nothing or very low cost, you can you can gain admission and take a look around. But uh, the Sunflower Inn, which Helen managed uh, during Prohibition, uh, it's, it's gone, you know, it's just a parking lot. I actually went to the parking lot uh, and, and just to kind of reconnect. And I uh, took a picture, ended up not putting it in the book. But her life story, which I'm not going to reveal in this interview because I want you to buy the book, but her life story is just so compelling. How she arrived in Milwaukee, the things that she did here, how she ended up living out her final days, that even though you, you can't visit the Sunflower Inn, I had to put it in the book anyway. It's such a great story. 
Now, most of these are places that you can visit. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. What do you hope people take away from this book? Do you hope that they go on kind of an adventure of Milwaukee? Do you hope they just learn a little bit more about their hometown? Uh, I'd really like to see that a lot. Um, I think that the more we can connect people to places in the community, places they haven't been before, it just helps everyone develop a sense of identity. And when you develop a sense of identity that is Milwaukee-based, you tend to care more about the city itself as well as the people who inhabit the city. So, you know... Sort of one of my big goals is to try to like bring people together, but in the in the meantime, just get out, get to know your city. Each site, each story is only two pages long, so it's very digestible. It's easy to read. Find something that you like. Find something that you didn't know that was there. Go visit that too. And then if you like it, hang around for a while. Have dinner at one of the neighborhood restaurants. Talk to some of the locals in the neighborhood or read up some more um, in, in one of my other books perhaps. Or, or go online and find something else that you can read about that neighborhood, about that site, about the people who live there, and kind of see this book as an entryway to greater learning. All right. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Walking in Milwaukee like every day Through snow and sleep back to where I stay Jim Nelson is the author of Secret Milwaukee, as well as many other books about the region. He spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. In about 10 minutes, we'll hear from the first female senior rabbi here in Milwaukee. But first, we'll learn how wildlife conservations are working to slow the spread of invasive carp in the Great Lakes by turning some of the fish into spies. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is getting old. I was at the lab trying to book a show. Walking in Milwaukee, it was time to go. Yo, I stay on the grind. Gotta get beer, it's a quarter to nine. I can't afford it this time, so it's gonna be fine. Stopping at the stop and go, listening to rock and roll. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Wildlife officials across the Great Lakes region are turning invasive carps into double agents, spies, in an effort to slow their push to the Great Lakes. Agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service along the Illinois and Mississippi rivers are working to capture and implant invasive carp with transmitters that track them. The transmitter tags then let the agency workers and commercial fishermen know where to target large groups of carp. To learn more about the trader fish tactic, Lake Effect's expert Nunez is joined by Mark Fritz, a fish biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service working in La Crosse. He begins by explaining different ways agencies along the Great Lakes region have already worked to slow the spread of invasive carp. So far, we have no evidence to suggest that invasive carp have made their way into the Great Lakes. However, we do have very large, thriving populations of invasive carp throughout the Illinois River. Managers have done as much as they can to try to deter those fish from making upstream passage into the Great Lakes. 
there is a very powerful electrical barrier, essentially stuns fish that are trying to swim through and hopefully stops invasive carp from going past that point. There are also really intensive removal efforts going on where commercial fishers are contracted by the state of Illinois to remove as many fish as possible downstream of that barrier to try to alleviate pressure of fish trying to push through that electric barrier. Can you kind of go into a little bit of how invasive carp have proven themselves to be harmful to our river or waterway systems? Invasive carp are eating machines. They really swim around with their mouths open all the time. They have a capacity to eat very small plankton that live in the river. These plankton are the base of the riverine food web. So nearly every other fish species and many other invertebrates, they rely on those plankton for their food. These fish are essentially competing for a common food resource with our native species. And so wildlife officials across the Great Lakes have implemented a seek and destroy type of strategy that uses carp as spies to lead them to big groups of carp. Can you tell me more about this strategy and how it came about? Generally, the strategy is referred to as a trader fish strategy. It's been used in a lot of different places around the world. This is not new. Some classic examples are lake trout in Yellowstone Lake and other places around the West. You know, lake trout from the Great Lakes were imported to those areas about a century ago, and they have outcompeted native trout in those regions, and so different organizations have taken it upon themselves to use trader fish techniques. So it's not new. Uh, We are just, you know, standing on the shoulders of those who came before us, essentially. But yeah, trader fish techniques can be incredibly effective if we are able to tag and release invasive carp in this area. My work, personally, uh, I work on the upper Mississippi River. It doesn't connect to the Great Lakes, but we are doing our best to try to use these techniques to preserve the fisheries and the recreational resources of the upper Mississippi River. And we've used telemetry to identify places and times where invasive carp congregate. And then we share that information as readily as we can with the teams who work with our contracted commercial fishers. And they are able to encircle those tagged fish. And oftentimes those tagged fish are being accompanied by tens or hundreds of their friends. And so we can capture large numbers of fish by essentially tracking around these traders. And can you kind of walk me through how the mitigation process works? For example, just even simply catching a carp. Is that something easy to do? It's very easy in places where the carp are very abundant. These carp leap out of the water, and a lot of times they'll just jump right in the boat with you. But in places where the populations are more limited, it becomes harder to catch them. You know, taking a step back, telemetry more generally is the concept of using instruments like transmitters to track the movements of animals. So, you know, if you've ever seen a spy movie uh, where they put some kind of tracker on someone's car, 
it's it's the same concept. So we surgically implant these tags inside of invasive carp. So one of my jobs is being a fish surgeon. Anesthetize the fish first and then open the fish up and push this tag inside their belly and then suture them up, let them recover, and we put them back in. We do that with sometimes thousands of fish in a year. And hopefully at least a good chunk of those fish that we release will return and be able to use the movement data that we gather from them to inform our efforts. And so how do you know when it's time to throw the net in the water and catch the fish? Or when do you collect that data? Well, in terms of tagging efforts, we've been able to use um, kind of a combination of previous telemetry data, as well as the professional experience of our commercial fishers and our partners to identify congregations, times, and places where these fish will be caught readily. We typically work with them to catch as many carp as we can. That typically occurs in the spring, so we learn that during April and May, we see sort of large staging areas for carp. And we're able to go in and exploit those congregations and, and catch enough fish to do the surgeries and implant. So how do you know if this strategy is working? I know you mentioned this trader fish strategy has been used for many years, but I guess in this particular case, in the work that you're doing, how do you know if this is working and what have the results been so far? Well, as you can imagine, it's kind of hard to count fish, especially when um, <laughs> when we're in a big river and the water's muddy. You know, we, the task of quantifying the numbers of fish that are present is pretty difficult. However, we can look at indications of the numbers of carp being caught over time in similar locations. So if, if that abundance of carp goes down over time, it gives us at least some indication that we're driving down that population. We can't expect results overnight. It, it does take a little while for the effect of these strategies to be manifest so that we can really understand. Right. And so why is it important to continue doing this project? And is it worth the amount of work that goes into it? When we catch carp like we're doing, our goal is to over-remove carp so that we are exceeding birth and immigration. If we do this for long enough, we will cause a population crash. So we will remove more carp than that population has the ability to produce new carp. And eventually we can crash these populations. There's a lot of reasons why we need to protect the Great Lakes. That's absolutely critical. One of the most prominent is the $7 billion annual fishing economy in the Great Lake. Uh, furthermore, this is a diverse and rich natural area, and we don't want that to be disrupted. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and telling me about this really interesting strategy. Thank you for letting me talk. This is really important, and we really appreciate the opportunity to share what we have. Mark Fritz is a fish biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service working in La Crosse. He spoke with Lake Effect's Excret Nunez. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? 
Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Next, we'll hear from the first female senior rabbi in a reform or conservative synagogue in the metro Milwaukee area, and what that role means to her. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Jessica Boralski took on the role as senior rabbi at Reform Congregation Emmanuel B'nai Jeshurun Synagogue in River Hills this year, making her the first female senior rabbi in a reform or conservative synagogue in the metro Milwaukee area. WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks with her about that distinction. But first, Borowski shared the biggest lesson she took away from being treated for breast cancer just a few years ago. I think the biggest thing that I learned was how to accept help, which is not easy for a lot of people, self-included, because we all like to think we can do it ourselves. And it taught me that it's not only okay to say yes when people want to help, but it is so much better for everybody. I had one friend who I couldn't drive myself, I could drive myself to chemotherapy, but I couldn't drive myself home um, because I was so drowsy from all of the medication. And so I had somebody drive me every week. And sometimes it was my husband and sometimes it was a friend. And I had one friend I called to ask if there was any chance she could drive me on that particular week. And she drove half an hour from her house to mine to pick me up in the morning, drove me 25 minutes out to the hospital, sat there with me for the four hours that I was getting my chemotherapy infusion, drove me home the 25 minutes back to my house, and then was about to head the 30 minutes back to her house, having really given me her entire day. And I looked at her when we got into my driveway and I said, thank you so much for giving me this entire day and for helping me and making this doable. And she looked at me and she said, seriously, thank you. Since I heard you were sick, I have wanted to do, I have just wanted to help. And I'm so grateful that I was able to do this and that you asked me. So thank you for finding me a way that I could help. And I was just blown away by that. And it really changed my perspective in a lot of ways and reminded me that community is not just about giving a helping hand, but it's also about accepting a helping hand. Um, And that's been a really important lesson for me.
Wow, that's really interesting. And I'm sure you've kind of incorporated it as you've stepped into the role of senior rabbi at Emmanuel. I wanted to mention Shir Chadash is a reconstructionist synagogue in Milwaukee, and they have had women rabbis. But I think for the Reform and Conservative synagogues, this is a first. Yes, absolutely. And I'm I'm honored to be that first. Um, And it's, you know, the, uh, several of the congregations have had assistant rabbis and cantors who are women, um, but I'm the first to lead the congregation as their as their rabbi or senior rabbi, and I'm honored. And it it both it means a lot to me personally. I think it means a lot to Milwaukee and and to the Jewish people to see that example. Um, you know, we we hear a lot about you can't be what you can't see. In, in the more conservative or orthodox streams of Judaism, I mean, just to talk about the role of women in general, not only can a woman not be rabbi, a rabbi in some of these streams, but they can't read from the Torah. They have to sit in the women's section of the synagogue with a divider called a mechitza. A man can't even listen to them sing. How does this, like, does this make you think about those who've paved the way for you to be a rabbi? The, the, of course, I think that the egalitarianism of liberal Judaism obviously means a lot to me because it, it's what, first of all, it's what I grew up with. I grew up in a fully egalitarian congregation where anything that men could do, everybody was welcome to do. There really wasn't a separation or a, any way to distinguish between men and women or anything like that. Um, and that's not true of all parts of Judaism or all congregations. And so I certainly respect it. It's a different, it's a, it's a different sort of separate tradition. And I greatly respect people who practice in that way. And it's simply not the way that I was raised. And I love that things are not off limits to me or to anybody else that there's just as much Judaism for me as a woman as there is for anybody else. So according to a 2020 Pew Research Center survey, only one-fifth of Jews nationwide attend services at a synagogue, temple, or other small Jewish group at least once a month. The rest attend services a few times a year or less. What do you see as the challenges to getting Milwaukee Jews, and frankly, Jews around the country, connected with their synagogues? I think one thing that that study skews is by measuring affiliation or participation rates only by looking at religious services. I think one of the things that we know is that some people connect to Judaism through services, no question. And some people connect to Judaism through working through like um, social action, social justice work, you know, working together as a community to make our world better. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's an amazing way to connect and practice Judaism. And some people connect to Judaism by studying. We have lots of adult education classes, for example, uh, where people come together and learn and study together. And some of those are people who don't come to services on a regular basis, and that's okay. It's another 
fantastic way to connect to Judaism. And some people connect socially where maybe they don't go to services and they don't study and that's okay. And they come because they want to be part of the Brotherhood or the Women of Emmanuel or another social group um, or whatever congregation they're at. They find their social group and they connect to Judaism through other Jews and other people who are affiliated with the congregation. And that's wonderful also. Community looks so many different ways, and it should. We're not all the same. And so while I do think it gives us, um, that study gives us the you know, reminder that we need to continue reaching out to lots of different people. I also think it's missing the people who are connected in all the other ways um, that they can connect and all of the other things that synagogues offer in addition to services. And is that a way to also tap into younger generations? I guess that same research study also showed that younger Jews are much more likely than older generations to identify as cultural but not religious. Or on the flip side, this was kind of interesting, it's still a small fraction, but there's more younger Jews identifying with orthodoxy than older Jews identify with orthodoxy. So reform and conservative identities in the middle are getting smaller. So what do you see as the challenges to sort of getting those younger Jews connected to this sort of more mainstream Jewish practice? I think it's it's definitely a challenge to get people of all ages to connect. And I think a lot of it is really the idea of meeting people where they are. And some of that is physically where they are. So going out and having a service in a different location that's not in the synagogue, that's maybe downtown, since our synagogues are almost all in the suburbs. Um, in Milwaukee, I think, you know, or or other events, we've, you know, like a, a meetup in a park for families with young children where the parents can sit and talk and the kids can go play on the playground and still have that Jewish connection. Maybe we do the Shabbat blessings and then let the kids play and the parents hang out and talk, maybe a little bit of study, maybe not. Maybe it's talking about how Judaism, what, what advice and wisdom Judaism can give us about the life stages that we're in right now, or about life circumstances or the state of the world, because Judaism's been around a really long time and has some truly remarkable wisdom and, and amazing things to tell us and teach us that even though our very ancient words are often incredibly relevant to what we're doing now. Um, and so I do think it's a great reminder and challenge to us to get out of our buildings and to meet people where they are and to also just have those conversations, one-on-one, small group conversations about what folks are looking for because the Judaism of my parents and grandparents doesn't look the same and isn't going to look the same as the Judaism of my eventual or my children and my eventual one day, hopefully grandchildren, not for a long time, Um, right? That the generations constantly get to reinvent what Judaism and Jewish practice look like. And that's why we're still here is because also the, Jew- the Jewish practice of my parents and my grandparents 
also didn't look like the Jewish practices of their parents and grandparents because it is constantly evolving and changing. And that's what makes it ever relevant and new. And so I think we need to continue to reach out to younger generations and find out what they're curious about. If they want to be cultural Jews, great. What does that mean to them? How do they define that? And are they looking for more than that? And if not, how can we be ready for when they are or when their children are? Um, Because people often, it, it cycles and people eventually come back even if they're not interested today. Interesting. So, so what are your hopes for Milwaukee's Jewish community heading into 5784? It's it's actually not 2023 according to the Jewish lunar calendar. It's 5784. So, um what do you what is your what are your hopes? I love that the Jewish community of Milwaukee is in so many ways very interconnected. I think there are not the silos that there are in some other communities to the same extent where people from all different congregations come together in some of our community organizations and people from different community organizations come together in our different synagogues. And I love that. I think it's one of the most beautiful things about Milwaukee's Jewish community. Um, and so I guess my my wish, my prayer for our community going into the new year is may we continue to connect with one another and get to know one another and be in relationship with one another. And may we also really learn from one another. Our congregations are all different. Our community organizations are all different and all play important roles in this community. And I hope that we can continue to break down those boundaries and get to know each other and learn together and really just keep this community strong and united. Well, Rabbi Jessica Borowski, Chag Sameach, Happy New Year. Chag Sameach. Thanks for joining me on Lake Effect. Thank you so much for having me. Rabbi Jessica Boralski is the senior rabbi at Reform Congregation Emmanuel B'nai Jishroon. She spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver in September. And that's Like Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Like Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Chuck Kornbach from the WUWM news team this week. Jason Revy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You won't hear Lake Effect on Monday. We'll be off for the holiday. Instead, you'll hear a special featuring culinary superstars talking about their favorite holiday recipes. Then for the rest of the week, you'll hear some of our favorite interviews from 2023. Thanks so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Ha ha ha
Oh, <laughs> 